Major support for Out to Lunch provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937, now with more than 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Online at joneswalker.com. Additional support for Out to Lunch from Fidelity Homestead Savings Bank and Resource Management, Inc. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're Out to Lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Once a week, I have lunch at Commander's Palace and invite guests from the world of New Orleans business to join me. We all know the music business is changing. Apparently, kids don't believe in buying music when they can steal it off the Internet. And web-based delivery systems like Spotify and Pandora are either creating or destroying musicians' careers, depending on whether you read Rolling Stone magazine or the Wall Street Journal. Whether the outlook for the music business is bleak or brilliant, one thing's for sure, nothing is ever going to stop musicians from writing, playing, and recording music. My guests on Out to Lunch today are New Orleanians with unique insights into both the creative and marketing ends of the music business. Jim McCormick is one of country music's most sought-after songwriters. Jim splits his time between writing in Nashville and teaching in New Orleans, where he's a visiting professor at Loyola University's School of Music Industry Studies. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm pretty sure Professor McCormick is the only faculty member at any university on earth who's had two number one hit songs on the country music charts this year. Jason Aldean's Take a Little Ride and Brantley Gilbert's You Don't Know Her Like I Do and has written hits for Tim McGraw and Trisha Yearwood. Reed Wick is a musician, a guitar player in New Orleans' party band, the Bucktown All-Stars, but when the sun comes up, he's member services production manager for the Recording Academy. That's the Grammy organization. Among other responsibilities, Reed coordinates the Academy's presence at music festivals and conferences across the country. After Hurricane Katrina, Reed ran Music Care's Hurricane Relief Fund and the Music Rising Instrument Replacement Program, which raised and dispersed nearly $4 million to Gulf Coast musicians. Jim, it looks and sounds too easy to say Jim McCormick has had two songs that were number one hits this year. Just like you sit around in your room and bang out a song and the next thing you know it's on the radio and everybody's singing along in their pickup. Obviously, it's not quite that simple. The country music business is a big business with many millions of dollars, and I'm sure it comes with the same politics and pressures uh, that you'd have to navigate in any business. Where does the business part of songwriting uh, come in? Uh, is it after you've written a song, or do you have to take care of business well before that to be positioned to even get a song heard by recording artists? Uh, what is the actual business part of the, the music and songwriting business uh, for yourself? My publisher is BMG Chrysalis. We have a great relationship, but it's in large part due to their efforts to stay in touch with me and mine to stay in touch with them and to keep each other informed of where, what's going on, what they know and what I know as far as um, who's looking for what kinds of songs and when. You know, For instance, we know when, when certain artists are going in to record a record. Um, we might begin to gather our thoughts, so to speak, about what songs would be best pitched to that project. You're at the stage now where since you've written these great hits, um, it's a lot easier for you to pitch something, I would imagine, right? It I mean, is. The doors open up. Uh, you know, it's just it's, it's really incredible. But, you know, a 10-year overnight success will throw some doors open. <laughs> it, it really will. And, Reed, as mentioned earlier, we, we keep hearing that the music business is changing. But the same number of radio stations still play the same number of songs. Concerts and festivals are anything but cheap. 
and I assume web-based music systems like Pandora and Spotify are too big to get away with ripping off artists, uh, I can see how record companies might be getting cut out of the gatekeeper middleman position they've had for years, but what is it exactly, if anything, that's changing for musicians? And is it changing for the better or for the worse, Reed? The shift in the paradigm is that the gatekeepers of the major labels who used to control all that access has changed to the point where it's caused the artists, for instance, to truly build a, as much as they can, a one-on-one -on -one relationship with their fans. And enduring your fans today, um, and, and empowering your fans to become your street team is probably the most powerful thing that you could have in the industry today. Because uh, having those fans be your cheerleaders, you know, that's the beauty of the word viral, you know, is that as you can build that fan base, whether it's locally and then it spreads out to their fans, and that's what we've seen happen with whether it's uh, the OK Go video on, you, on YouTube. The treadmills, that I love that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that video cost them hardly any money, but made them stars because it went viral. And how did it go viral? Because those few people who saw it first tur turned their friends onto it and just kept that moving down the line. So um, and it's much harder to wrap your head around intellectual property because it's not a widget. It's not something that you can pick up and hold mm -hmm. and go... Well, I mean, you used to be able to go to a retail outlet and buy it, like a, rec you know, a record store or something along those lines. But... It's just harder for bankers, it's harder for the business community to really wrap their heads around what is it that it makes up the music business. And this is such a live music town that we've seen. It's easy to point to Jazz Fest, it's easy to point to clubs on Frenchman Street, it's easy to point to those things that are related to live music. That still is a huge part of income streams for a lot of folks. But we've seen, just with the Treme TV show, a lot of musicians have seen that uh, sync license money come in um, that just didn't flow here as much in the past and a lot of musicians are interested in that and I think that that understanding of the intellectual property all the values that go with it taking care of the business on the front end of having make sure that your songs are copyrighted properly that you have clear title that you have work for hires worked up all those kinds of things then allows you to leverage the property that you own that intellectual property and then put it into the marketplace that Jim's discussing about getting your songs placed in a TV show, in a movie score, and those can be incredible hits. I mean, I can name a few examples of people who have made six figures from getting a song placed in a TV show or a movie, but, but even, you know, the average one might be five to ten grand, but for a musician in New Orleans, for a piece of music that's already done, if all the paperwork's done, that's Lanyap. You know, this is the uh, uh, part of the show we call the checklist, where we uh, ask you a few questions that you probably wouldn't uh, find on a loan application. But, uh, but <laughs> we, uh, we thought we'd... <laughs> and you two guys would be perfect on this. Uh, um, how many days of Jazz Fest do you go to? Reed, I'll start with you. Uh, well, it depends on me, because for the band, I'm just as busy during Jazz Fest playing, well, at Jazz Fest and at other little festivals and other things around. And But it's also a time that a lot of my Grammy peeps come into town. Oh, yeah, so that's I'm entertaining. True. So that's both at Jazz Fest and away from Jazz Fest. So I probably would say five of the seven. And the other days you're doing something. I'm doing something. Music music well, I'm certainly doing something music related pretty much every day of my <laughs> life. But, but around Jazz Fest, it's a busy time for people in the industry. I bet it is. And what about you, Jim? Do you well, having worked there for the last 17 years, I think, uh, delivering ice to the sound crews, uh, I've, I've attended every Jazz Fest wow. day for the 17 Iceman years. Cometh. The Ice Man Cometh. That is so it. Great. That's it. Oh, and, I like uh, that. It's been a great, I great game. using that one. Really <laughs> <laughs> Now's the time we like to check our inbox. It's a, a producer, which is Grant Morris, who's sitting right next to us here. He, he takes a look at what came in in the inbox. And uh, Grant, what have you got? 
Peter, we had some interesting questions today about the music business. This one I decided to ask on behalf of Jason Jones, who's a New Millennium exile who lives in Toronto, Canada, and listens to the show as a podcast. He says, I've heard that Spotify is a good way for an artist to get discovered, but a bad way for an artist to get paid. Is that true? Does Spotify pay less than other platforms like iTunes? If there is, in fact, no uniform fee across all these platforms, who is negotiating these rates on behalf of artists? Spotify does play, pay far less than iTunes. Spotify is a streaming service. iTunes is a digital download purchase. So as a subscriber to Spotify, you're, you're listening to something that you have a subscription to. You can access it anytime you want, but you don't own that uh, recording. You can't, say, transfer it to another device or to a CD or email it to a friend. That's not going to happen. So the, the, the amount that Spotify pays you as the copyright owner for streaming your song is much less than what iTunes pays the copyright owner for the sale of the song. Um, how much less? I don't know. I think it's a real fraction. I think I mean, the Spotify numbers are a little bit frightening. As a consumer, I love Spotify. People say, what's it like? I'm like, it's like Christmas. It's amazing. <laughs> every genre of every album is, is out there. But as a songwriter, as a copyright holder, it's kind of horrifying how many point zero 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 zeros there are before they get to that number, the integer that tells you what, how many cents you're getting per stream. I mean, it's really, from a business point of view, for that matter, the music business as a whole, from a business point of view, is kind of absurd sometimes. Who negotiates the rates on uh, for artists? I mean, how, how does that happen? Is that is it across the board, or is there real negotiations? Well, I mean, I think that's one of the real problems with all of the uh, the different services that are out there. Um, I was at a music conference, and I heard the presentation uh, from I'm trying to remember who who it was exactly, but um, it, the way they presented it was: if you're in your car and you're listening to any song, pick a song, and you hear it over terrestrial radio. Think about the different people who get paid. And then if you have XM, Sirius, whatever, and you listen to it there, a whole different set of people get paid a whole different amount of money. And if you have your Spotify or your you know, iTunes or whatever on your phone and you have it synced to your car and you listen to it, now you've heard the same song in three or four different formats, and every time you listen to it, to the consumer on their end, they're just hearing the same song over again. They may be hearing it from a different channel, so to speak, within their environment, but every one of those has a different pay structure. And so th I think that's one of, the, as one of the downsides as technology has progressed is that there has been no real definitive answer as far as how do you justify paying somebody this amount? Because when you think about it, every song has two copyrights attached to it. One of them is the... Under the intellectual property, the underlying song, we refer to that as the PA, or the Performing Arts Copyright. And the other one is the sound recording, the SR copyright. And both of those get paid, one of them you would get paid from the PROs, the, public, uh, the Performing Rights, rights. Or Organizations. We know BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, or the three that we have in the United States. Um, and they pay the songwriters and the publishers based on performance of those songs and a play on the radio is considered a performance according to the Copyright Act, then the song recording is typically owned by the recording company or whoever pays for the recording essentially winds up or owning a piece of that. Now depending on the negotiation with the artist, they may have a part ownership in that. So, And then there's recoupable. So I mean, it's a very complicated process that leads up to dividing up how those two copyrights are paid out. But 
you know, depending on how that song is delivered to the end user, depends, differentiates that formula of uh, who gets paid over which of those two copyrights. And in some cases, one of those copyrights doesn't get paid at all. If it's through ter terrestrial radio, they might not get paid at all. Then you enter into the equation of, so a terrestrial radio station also has a web stream. So that enters a whole nother set of, you know, questions. And so just figuring that piece of it out is, is mind-boggling. I mean, it, it's really hard to get a grip on. And for the average person who's just listening to the radio, it's a concept that just is through the roof. I mean, how do you even begin to conceptualize that, much less really have a concern over who gets paid what on how it gets performed? When it comes to negotiating that, I mean, you have a couple of different bodies that are at work. Um, uh, you certainly Your organization? have... Yeah. Our organization, the Recording Academy, has a government relations and advocacy wing, and we advocate vigor, you know, vigorously on Capitol Hill on behalf of the songwriters and the creative community. Um, there's a number of, um, I don't want to say fights, but essentially they are. They're congressional battles that go on. Um, there's a huge one going on right now with uh, Pandora Radio um, that's happening on Capitol Hill. Um, yeah, can, let me say, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, what I know from, from my friends who work on Capitol Hill as uh, advocates for record companies and such, you know, there, there are the technologists, and there are the, there's the music industry. And, you know, I think in broad strokes, the technologists have their act together so tightly. And the music industry as a whole, we're not, you know, we're, we're kind of a, a fleet of pirate ships. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just, we, we, I think we're, we're a little bit behind organizing a, so that we have a unified voice or a cooperative sort of um, position with the technologists that we can then present to uh, legislators to, you know, sort of, because the legislators are not going to educate themselves on their own. You know, we kind of have to, and the technologists, have, I think, have done a great job. They also have a lot more money than the music industry has to spend on lobbying and advocating. Um, but I think that, you know, our, our, our main problem is not that the, that the issues are too large or anything like that. It's really just us kind of, we have to cooperate with the technologists if we want to win these battles in the legislator, legislatures, I think so, you know. Um, and I don't think that the, that, the, that the technologists are opposed to us sharing a bigger piece of the pie. It's just right now um, they'd be doing us a favor by giving us more. And I think, I think as an industry, you know, we have to, you know, and I belong to the Recording Academy, the Songwriters Guild of America, the National Songwriters Association. There, there's a lot of um, sort of um, industry associations, professional groups that, that advocate for different aspects of the industry. Well, and Jim, this is a non sequitur, but you know, you're from New Orleans. I never think of this as kind of a country music place, but you became a country music writer. Is it was it always inside you, or you know, I think the uh, literature always was. And I mean, it's a good, it's a great question, you know. But uh, Nashville country music, in particular, being a um, a genre in which the lyric still has such uh, primacy and and a, a narrative and a, a clear sort of imagery is still highly valued in that in that genre not that it's not in the other genres but it's just it has it has a primacy in country music that it doesn't have in other genres um, it was a natural place for a kid who wanted to write poetry for his life uh, which is what I began as an academic I did my MFA at, at the University of New Orleans and I enjoyed it so much and I enjoyed teaching very much but frankly it wasn't as much fun as music and I had had bands all my life I had friends in Nashville and they said come to town come see you might be able to offer something here I was very, very fortunate to have them uh, open doors for me, and I'm very fortunate to find a, a home for myself. But I come from a literary background, so the, the long answer yeah. to your question is, country music still has 
um, you know, a, a great appreciation for, I think, the literature of songwriting and, and that sort of approach to songwriting. And I'm a lyricist, first and foremost. I can play a little guitar and I can sing a little bit, but I'm, I'm primarily a lyricist. And I, I've seen some of, some of your work, listened to it. I, I always think the greatest title would be, uh, if I had shot her when I wanted, I'd be out by now. But they, uh, there was, uh, I always thought that would be a good, good tune. Up. He's they, pulling out his pad. <laughs> he does that to me all the time. He goes, that's great. Let me write that down. <laughs> That'll be so great if that becomes a country song. And I'll be, yeah. Let's take a look at our lunch money. Lunch money is our out to lunch stock portfolio. Uh, the market, the stock market has been doing really, really well. You know, we're up, uh, uh, NASDAQ is at a 12 year high. The S&P 500 is at a five year high. Uh, many, many companies are getting bought out these days, really for two reasons. One, there's so much money out there and stock prices still look pretty cheap on an historical uh, basis. We always ask our uh, our guests if they have a stock pick for us in our, uh, and we put it on on our website as part of the Out to Lunch uh, stock portfolio. Um, Reed, uh, is there a name you want to throw out here? You know, uh, and now I'm going to plead the fifth of sorts because I know you asked me to do that you via do email it? and I totally, I've had a crazy weekend. Reed didn't do the homework. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, happens, I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the songwriter did the homework and you didn't do the homework. <laughs> This is, this is what we always thought. <laughs> I played three gigs this weekend. <laughs> but you got paid. I got paid. <laughs> I'm going to put stock in the Bucktown All-Stars. All right, okay. we're doing good. All right, all right. Well, not publicly traded, but a good idea nonetheless, though. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, we will, we'll, and Jim, do you, uh, uh, you've got a... Well, what did I say? Siri, right? Not the iPhone voice, but Siri, the... Um, Sirius, the, the, the XM Sirius? Sirius XM Sirius. Yeah. Um, you know, I think satellite, you talk about all the different streams of sort of income that come to songwriters. You know, a big part of my income when I look at my statements from BMI is satellite radio. And I think that a big part of how listeners find music today is satellite radio. The, the demands of commercial radio aren't present there. It doesn't have to be the top 20 songs in, in the country. Um, so I think listeners... You got the, you know, it's, you've got an exposure to a much wider group of songs, and I think that listeners appreciate that, and who want to discover new music, who might not want the randomness of a Pandora, or who might not have the sort of foreknowledge that Spotify requires. I mean, Spotify it has a Pandora radio thing on it, but that that sort of radio-like, you know, uh, curating to your listening day is something that's very attractive to a lot of listeners. I don't think satellite radio is going anywhere. I think it's going to be around for a long time. And I agree. I think one of the cool things about um, satellite radio and a number of the online radio type programs uh, is the the sense of discovery that you can get. You know, especially for a music fan, because I mean, Jim and I, I guess we both agree on this. I mean, first and foremost, we're music fans to start with. And which soup is why fans. We that was another thing. Oh I yeah, soup fans too. <laughs> but um, I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I bought a new car back in February and it came with the satellite radio you know demo program and I I was like wow this is really cool you know I'd still listen to public radio locally but I uh, the most of the commercial stations that don't really do much for me so I've wound up turning to satellite radio and they really have a whole bunch of niches that you can kind of follow my favorite one probably right now is one called deep tracks because they play songs from artists that you know but songs that never made it on the radio back oh. in the day or the DJs go out and find some things that they think are cool but that didn't wind up being commercially successful. The B-sides of some the of these? Yeah, and some of it is the coolest stuff and like, you know, <laughs> I love discovery. You know, one of the things I loved early on with um, 
with Apple and iTunes was, uh, now they call it genius, but before that it used to be called something like, you should know or you should hear this or whatever. And it was based on songs that you pre previously downloaded or stuff that you may have burned from your CD catalog. And it would say, since you own this or bought this, you might like this. And I've found some of the most amazing songs and artists that I never ever would have discovered through that. I and thought I love brokerage that. firms ought to do that. Like you buy shares of Exxon and then it says, you might also like Chevron. You know, there's a... How this well, is a good service. Though, I think I'm pretty, pretty, that, might be the, <laughs> that might be the problem. I have, I have a student who works for uh, XM Sirius in New York, and I went up there this summer, and it was fascinating because they're all together on two, two big floors, and it's all these egos in one giant room. And, and the way they have it, like they had one of those yelling sports shows right next to the, the uh, most popular gay and lesbian show, right? And they all knew each other. It was a very odd deal. And I got into Howard Stern's cave, which was, you know, that was, pretty, that was pretty good too. But not as good as being in the wine room at Commanders with you guys. Today, they uh, Jim McCormick, uh, Reed Wick. The number of lives you guys touch through your music and your work in the music business is truly phenomenal. Uh, you've both carved out amazing careers in a tough business. As New Orleanians, we all feel a sense of pride in your accomplishments and hope there are many more ahead. And thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch today. Thanks Thank so you much. so much. Thank it was you. a blast. You guys are great. Uh, my guests on Out to Lunch today have been songwriter and music professor Jim McCormick and musician and member services production manager for the Recording Academy, Reed Wick. To hear Jim's music and to find out more about Reed's work with the Grammy organization, follow the links on our sites, www.no.org and itsneworleans.org. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music, and dinner seven nights a week. Our producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our web designer and digital guru is Dr. Cliff Brigden. Jennifer Smith is our researcher. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can keep up with our continuing adventures in Crescent City Commerce by liking It's New Orleans on Facebook, and you can get in touch with us or sign Sign up for our mailing list at itsneworleans.com, and you can follow us on Twitter. We're at itsneworleans. To listen to past shows or to get this show as a podcast, go to wwno.org or itsneworleans.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting and WWNO for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. Until we meet around the table here at Commander's Palace, I'm Peter Rashidi. Thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937. Now with more than 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Online at joneswalker.com. Additional support for Out to Lunch from Fidelity Homestead Savings Bank and Resource Management, Inc.